I'm Kieran. And I'm Eve. This is Kitchen Table Cult. We're two quiverful escapees talk about our experiences in the cultish underbelly of the religious right. Hey, Kieran. Hi, Eve. How are you? I am good. I finally, I beat the Berlin boss, the first boss battle. I won... I have an apartment. I have my own room again for the first time since February and my own bed <laughs> that I just put together today. So amazing. Yeah, it's it's good. How are how are you? I'm beat, but you know, it's a beautiful day here and it rained all last night and the garden is super lush right outside my window and that is making me happy. So and I like went into the office for the like first real time today for my new job and uh, picked up a COVID abandoned houseplant that is like six and a half feet tall. <laughs> I'm so oh, excited. Nice. Yeah. So adventures here, mostly plant stuff. Plant stuff is good. Cat is feeling better. Cat is feeling much better. We are 98% healed. Excellent. Um, I don't remember if we talked about that last time, but I feel like it's important to have a cat wellness update. Oh, my God. Um, so let's introduce our guest and then I'll – Okay, yes. <laughs> She's sitting here being like, what? <laughs> Hi, Leah. Hi. <laughs> I want to hear about your cat. <laughs> we are so excited to have Leah Satili with us today to talk about her book, When the Moon Turns to Blood, that just came out two days ago. So we have fresh, fresh material here. Very exciting. Hot off the press. It's good. Yeah. So introduce yourself and then I'll fill you in about the cat. <laughs> sure. Uh, so I'm Leah Satili. I'm a freelance journalist. I cover the Western United States predominantly. I write um, almost exclusively about political and religious extremism in this region and I, uh, I've hosted a couple of podcasts that are also on this topic. One is called Bundyville, and it was about the Bundy family, which host, which hosted two armed <laughs> occupations, uh, two armed standoffs with the government, and another called Two Minutes Past Nine, which is about the Oklahoma City bombing 25 years after the fact. Mm. So, yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of intense work is where I dwell. Well, you uh, sound like you fit in real well with us. <laughs> Welcome to the club. <laughs> Thank and you. now I have some new podcasts to listen to. <laughs> yeah. So my cat, I have this this cat I rescued back in like 2018. And she is like semi-feral and very, very sweet, but definitely a like PTSD, easily spooked cat. And um and she had a real rapid uh, onset cancer and had to have her leg amputated. And then her wound wasn't healing right. So it's just been this like whole saga of like, will she, won't she, is it going to be okay? And she, she will, she wants to live and she is getting so much better, but it oh. has been a lot <laughs> That sounds so hard. Oh, cats are heartbreakers. I'm just, I'm just really, you know, thrilled that she's alive and, you know, getting back to her pre-surgery weight and like feeling herself oh, again. So it's good. really so nice. That's so, so good. 
We were happy that Saigal decided she was going to make it. <laughs> it's a bit a whole journey. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's the good news. That's Let's very get good into news. like some not as great news. Oh God. <laughs> that's that's what I've yeah. got for a segue. <laughs> I first ran into this story when it was added to um, homeschooling's invisible children, which if you don't know what that is, dear listeners, it is um, a database that the Coalition for Responsible Home Education has maintained of incidents of newsworthy, like act, made the news abuse or uh, murder of that were related to homeschooling um, where homeschooling was a factor in the, the situation. So this was added to the database back in the day. I remember crossing my path, but it was kind of drowned out by like all these other situations that were happening, like the Hart family and the Turpins and, <laughs> and Leah, how did you fall down this rabbit hole? Yeah, it was uh well, sort of not too dissimilarly than you, I heard that there were these two children that were missing in December 2019. So I I have written about missing persons before. Initially, I thought, well, that, you know, people seem to really have no idea where these kids were. But one of the first stories I read about it being, I, I live in Oregon. This happened in Idaho. So this is, I, I've ton, done tons of reporting in Idaho. And in one of the initial articles I read, they said these two children are missing and these two parents are missing. And they think it might have something to do with their, quote, cult-like religious beliefs that mm. could lead to where they are. And there was a bit more detail, you know, saying that they were members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Mormons. I have written a lot about the fringes of the LDS church. And so I kind of, it kind of caught my ear and I wondered, you know, I wonder if they believe in some of the things I've written about. I wonder if specifically this one kind of fringe prophecy that's not accepted by the mainstream church, but a lot of people believe in, I kind of wondered, you know, if they believe in that, that could mean that they're really freaked out about the political situation in America. And maybe they've taken their kids to some dusty bunker to, whether what they think is going to be the apocalypse. So it was really there that I started. It just felt similar enough. And pretty quickly, I was able to prove not only was my hunch completely right on that they did believe in some of these things, but it was even like more fringe mm. than anything I'd even heard of before. So I just started digging. That's kind of where it starts for me as I just start reporting and reporting and reporting and it got crazier. Is this... The, you know, as, as a fellow have, have done the freelance journalism thing and as a nonfiction writer, like one of the things I was thinking about as I was reading this is, is this the book that you thought you were writing when you started on this? No, I mean, I <clears throat> initially, so you, you, then you will know this very unique freelance journalism pain was I, I, I pitched this just as an article, um, yeah. a long form magazine article. And I got one rejection, you know, I'm very, very used to rejection, like, oh, yes. at this point. So I got a rejection, a pretty hard rejection. Like, I don't know, this seems like kind of like a tabloid story. I had another editor I thought would be interested, that just completely ghosted me, like I never mm. heard from her again. And I was like, God, this is like a I really think that my hunch is right here. And so I don't know, over the years as I've been freelancing, I've been doing it almost 10 years, I have 
sort of taken a reverse reaction to rejection. Like it just makes me double down more on an idea. And I'm like, this is a really good idea. So, <laughs> so this, this, all happening. Yeah, this is all happening in like February, 2020 and then March hits and I lost all of my work. Like every single thing I had planned for the year, just poof up in smoke. And so oh, yeah. I thought, well, I've been wanting to write a book. I think that this might have a book in it. So I'll write a book pitch and see if I can get anyone interested. And initially I couldn't like it went and made the rounds to all kinds of literary agencies and no one was interested. And I was like, okay, well, I don't really have any time to dwell on it. I'm a little fuzzy on the timeline. Was the case like at any kind of conclusion by the time you were pitching it? No, kids were just missing. Kids were missing and the parents were still missing. And so there was, yeah, there really wasn't much. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I didn't sell the book. You know, I had to move on, figure out something. Then Lori, the mother and uh, her husband, Chad Daybell were found not in a dusty bunker, but in Hawaii vacationing, living in a very expensive condo on a golf course. And um, this story kind of started to bubble up a little bit more in the news. Like she still wasn't saying where her kids were. And um, we started to hear the longer COVID was going on that people like were like, you know, hoarding toilet paper Mm -hmm. and they were prepping up for the apocalypse and stuff. And I sent some really kind of snarky email to my agent and I was like, Boy, it seems like I kind of was on the uh, forefront of this with this idea for this book. Like, see a trend. Yeah, Mm -hmm. like nobody ever listens to me. And he was like, maybe we should take it out one more time. And then all of a sudden there was a ton of interest in it. So it was kind of this one thing where I was like, I just became more and more like solid that it was a good idea. And yeah, but it did not, you know, I thought this is going to be a version of Mormonism that I'm that I understand that I've written about before, but it was not, I mean, it it was to an extent that was sort of the starting place for me, but it went in wildly different directions than anything I'd ever heard of before. And it straddles a lot of this like kind of academic history context Mm -hmm. kind of reporting and the like actual like current day narrative or recent Mm -hmm. times narrative. How did you decide to, to do both and, dovetail it? Mostly because I thought that, you know, because of COVID, because of all the protests over racial justice, because of Trump, like this story was just the only people who seemed to be interested in it were kind of tabloidy, crimey stuff. And I thought, well, yeah, I mean, it certainly fits in that space, but I think there's something much more intelligent we can learn from what this is. And so I immediately was thinking of John Krakauer's Under the Banner of Heaven, which is a very controversial book, Mm -hmm. but as a piece of journalism taken as that, it's, you know, about the fringes of the LDS church and all the context, all the historical context that fits into that. And so I thought, you know, what if I took this story that is being seen as kind of trashy and really tried to apply that lens to it, to try to, you know, to let's have an intelligent conversation about where these beliefs that these mother and father have. So it was really kind of taking direct inspiration from books like that. Yeah. And did you see like your audience being like true crime fans or cults, curious people or historians or. I think I wanted to just write the, write a book for people who thought they knew every single thing about this story. Uh 
and show that there was more okay. to it. So I didn't have a specific audience in mind. If anything, I had myself in mind mm-hmm. as an audience. Like I just wanted to write a book that I felt like I would want to read. And, you know, it is a, like you say, you know, it has this sort of play-by-play narrative of what happened with this case. But then there's just these deep dives into these cultures mm-hmm. and histories of near-death experiences and LDS fiction and the prepper circuit and stuff. So I was trying to kind of... I don't know. Sometimes I say it like, you know, with like a baby, you do the like airplane in the. the, 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 (laughs) Yes. Oh, yes. Like, I feel like I'm like, I'll give you this kind of like crimey narrative, but in between, I'm going to feed you some vegetables, (laughs) like Zoom. (laughs) So I've never done that. Never. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's something to, you know, to be taken away from it um, beyond this is horrible what happened people should go to jail forever, period. There's just so, so, so much more about who we are as a culture, how systems uphold a permissiveness to violence mm-hmm. or maybe indulge mm-hmm. violent behavior. So that's kind of where I where I thought I could go with it. Yeah, what really struck out to me while reading it was just how many layers there were. Like, there's I I was like, wow, there's so many things connected, which is funny because like that's what we do on this podcast all the time. We're like the mm-hmm. uh, Sunny in Philadelphia meme where we have like the map and the string. And we're just like, it's all here. That's <laughs> <laughs> all the time. Yeah, it definitely felt, you know, both like homey and also surreal to be in a world that we're not familiar with, where someone else is mm-hmm. doing that same kind of work. I mean, it makes me happy to meet you both because I, so at the, at one point, I, all this art behind me on the wall, I had taken it all down and there were all these like multicolored, you know, like orange cards mean, you know, people and then like green th- cards or theories. And I had it just arranged. And then, you know, everywhere in my office, I had books on like UFO, UFO cults and like fringe Mormon ideology. <laughs> like, if someone came in my office, like I looked like very unstable. <laughs> like it looked bad. Been there, done that. Yeah, I think you have yeah. like you have a shelf of shame, right? Which is all our history books. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 I have a bad bookshelf, and my roommates are like, when I start pulling books out from it, they're like, "Oh my god, there's so many scary books out in the dining t- room table. Can you like put them away?" Yeah. <laughs> on your shelf of shame, crushing the vibe. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. I'm glad all those layers made sense, though, because there were times where I was like okay, if I can pull this off and build this house of cards, I think it'll be very satisfying for people. Mm -hmm. But if it's, you know, it took so, so, so much writing and editing and, you know, again and again and again to make it make sense because it was, because it is so complicated and there's so many characters and so many things to get into. Yeah, Yeah, along that line, I was wondering, do you feel like there's something you wish you could have spent more time on? That guy less less attention because of the layers maybe i i think one thing that was just very difficult for for me as a reporter but for all reporters was just writing this through the worst of the pandemic it just made it really difficult to do on the ground reporting and usually i feel like my on the ground reporting is where my strength mm-hmm. is you know getting people to talk or finding right. weird you know, connections and things like that. So I couldn't really do a lot of that stuff. And I couldn't really spend too much time in the places. I mean, I did go to the places that are in this story. But yeah, if anything, if I could have done it again, I would have, you know, obviously, hopefully not been doing it during a pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. 
so what like kind of going back before this book what kind of brought you to like the writing about extremism scene and like specifically like what brought you to writing about LDS? So I have sort of a weird story in journalism. I started and did the, you know, for a long time, I worked for an alternative newspaper in Eastern Washington in a city called Spokane. And just a um, city called Spokane. It's fine. I don't know if everybody knows where that (laughs) is. I used to live in Washington state. So I'm like, Oh yeah. Spokane. Okay. (laughs) I've been through Spokane. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Well, okay. So I lived in Spokane. My East Coast relatives are always like, Leah lived in Seattle. And I'm just no. like, there are six hours apart. It's very different. <laughs> so I lived in Spokane. I worked for an alternative newspaper there called The Inlander. And I was actually the music editor. So I started my career writing about, you know, bands going on tour. I wrote I freelance for like the biggest heavy metal magazine in the country. Like my world was writing about music and art and that kind of thing. But one thing that I started to kind of specialize on when I was there was sort of fringe people, fringe cultures. So people within the music scene that felt, you know, like their art was like very relegated to the edges or um, so a lot of people I I wrote about a lot of people who felt pushed to the edge of society or, or really put themselves there. And when I started freelancing in 2013, one of the first stories that I did was actually for Playboy. And it was about a guy in the edge, you know, on the edge of Spokane in the suburbs who showed me his like survivalist bunker. I mean, he literally thought the world was going to end at any moment. And it was like, look at all my guns. Look at all my (laughs) amount of like canned food I've ever seen in my life. Like, so you didn't grow up around these these kinds of people. This is not your your, your like home base. <laughs> no, I'm not at all. But I did grow up in Oregon and I knew a lot of Mormons. So when things really changed for me was in 2016, I was back living in Oregon by then and there's an armed takeover, a 41-day takeover of a wildlife refuge right. here in Oregon, a federal property where people led this long standoff over their anti-government belief systems. And a big part of that was that it was being led by a couple of Mormon brothers. So their ideology really kind of came into play. And, you know, in the coverage of it, I saw a lot of people being like, you know, kind of relegating like, oh yeah, of course they're Mormons or whatever. And I was like, hang on, like, this does not mimic any of the childhood friends and families that I knew as as a child. So I kind of dug in to try and find like, okay, where, where do they diverge from mainstream Mormonism? I covered their trial after they were arrested. I covered another trial involving them in Nevada. And I started to realize more and more that the story that people really kind of weren't seeing was that this really was their armed confrontations with the government were born out of their religious ideology. And at one point, you know, I just sat on their couch at their ranch and said, is this all because of religion? And they were like, yeah. Like, so, I mean, I, I was able to confirm that and kind of dig in and then understand that their beliefs about them being the sort of saviors of the constitution and the country, I believed were, were very fringe, but I found out after I did a lot of that reporting, it was a much less fringe, but just very hush hush. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of people didn't want to talk about it kind of thing. So that's kind of where that foundation was built. I sort of 
you know, really dug into their religious ideology. I have a religious education. I can't, you know, I was went through Catholic schools my whole life. I've always found religious ideology fascinating, particularly when people wield it to manipulate others. So that's a lot of what I saw happening in these, these stories that I was writing. And then, yeah, I just, it's, you know, very specific expertise that I had at that point. So then when I heard about JJ Vallow and his sister, Tylee Ryan, I was like, well, that would be very weird if it's like something that I understand yeah. very deeply, but I, <laughs> you're like, I oh. wish I didn't recognize this, but if only me, I were wrong, if only I could just file away the, all those things I learned and not ever have to think about them again. But yeah, yeah here we are. Yeah. yeah. Um, I want to put a pin in the constitution bit, but moving back to what you were saying about fringe beliefs and stuff. Like one of the things that, you know, is hard to describe to people who still have like fairly liberal, but Christian belief systems for us is like, you know, the whole no true Scotsman fallacy about folks like the, you know, super fundamentalist Christian, um, you know, white supremacist groups or the Westboro Baptist folks, like, you know, oh, those aren't like part of us. Those don't represent us, but like they actually are very like well folded into the the rest of that, you know, kind of galaxy of of belief. Do you feel like there's there's some of that happening here? Do you feel like there's something inherently violent about Mormon teaching that or or I'm not sure what, what what do you think here where it's like this is not this is not representative of us we're disowning this is that fair for I think that that's certainly what you know quote unquote normal mormons would say about the very well publicized fringes of their church i mean like look at the hulu show under the banner of heaven or the new netflix show keep sweet like these are about the polygamists the fundamentalists and and they will very often say like, why is this being given so much attention? Like, this is not what we're about. These things are completely condemned by the, by the hierarchy of the church. And the unfortunate thing is I think that what's, what's difficult and where, you know, my own reporting becomes kind of controversial is that uh, of all things, my reporting of all things is that people very much don't like when you hold a mirror up Mm -hmm. to them. And I think that a lot of people, that I've heard from sources that I have who are LDS say, Oh my God, I watched the new documentary about, you know, Warren Jeffs and the FLDS and like people talk about how this is not who we are, but it's really similar. There are similarities. So, so there's that. I think also there's just sort of a, a tenet of writing about extremism for a long time is that not talking about it, does not work. Mm-hmm. And that <laughs> applies to, you know, racist preachers or, you know, or beyond, far beyond the LDS church. So I apply that here too, that, that, that it's important to understand that, that where Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell met, you know, that was a big question I was trying to answer with this book was like, what circumstances could possibly lead to these two people with these wild ideas 
to meet each other. Right. I mean, you would think this is so fringe. How could they possibly meet each other? Well, they met each other on the prepper survival because they were so fringe. Yeah. Exactly. There was there's there's this, this like culture of conferences, and if there's a culture of conferences. If there's a man, Chad Daybell, who's selling his books and is known as, you know, sort of a, you know, LDS fiction author, now you're talking that this very fringe thing has a whole economy around it. Well, then that's not so fringe anymore, I think. So that's kind of where, where, <laughs> yes. where that went, where that goes. <laughs> See also homeschool fundamentalists, <laughs> yeah. like that whole conference right? circuit, that whole like book world, like. Yeah, it's very. It was very familiar, like reading those those descriptions, because I'm like, yeah, well, that's how that's how this this has worked. For yeah, a long yeah, time. none of that was surprising. I was like, of course, there's a prepper forum. Like, there's prep forums for all of this. Like, we hung out in the like stuff. homeschool purity culture modesty forums. Why couldn't <laughs> they hang out in there? You know. Well, and now that you're saying this, I mean, so much of my reporting was hanging out on that website, another voice of warning. And there's like, you know, sub forms for everything, like, you know, your canned food storage or your, you know, near-death experiences. But there was also a lot on homeschooling there. And that's, I wasn't looking for that, you know, but I could see that it was there. There were clearly a lot of people and and, and so many women that were members of that Mm -hmm. site who were saying, you know, I'm prepping up for for the end. I know it's coming. My husband doesn't know that I'm doing this while he's at work all day, mm. but I'm, you know, it, it, that was very mm-hmm. surprising to me. Yeah. yeah. And I, I feel like one of the things I've been, I've been observing is like, I, I feel like we're heading into another wave of like that post-feminist, like it's actually more feminist for me to stay at home and like embrace my role of being a wife and mother. Um, like mm. this is, this is the subversive thing to do is to be the housewife. And I can see, you know, those spaces really feeding that. That's interesting, especially too, with this kind of care crisis mm-hmm. that we're in mm-hmm. where there's just, everyone is trying to figure out how to take care of their children. I can totally see that people doubling down, yeah. like you're saying oh, yeah. and saying, well, this it's is just a matter of time before we have like a new Mary Pride popping up with a bestseller oh yeah i'm sure like that's already in the works and will be out at the next like round of conventions like it's it's a thing that's happening anyway which is um, upsetting as as people who work in the homeschool space this is not mm-hmm. great mm-hmm. um okay so we've we've done a lot of chit chat around the actual story here um mm-hmm. for those who aren't familiar um, what's the what's the super short version? I mean, you wrote a whole book about this. This is rude to ask you. Yeah, but um, no, no, it's fine. Um, the so so basically, like I said, it started for me when I heard about these this two missing children, their missing mother, and their missing father. I thought what I thought was their father at the time. Um, they were all gone. No one knew where they were. Said it might have to do with their religious beliefs. Uh, they, the, the parents, Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell were found in February, 2020 in Hawaii, still wouldn't say where the kids were. The state of Idaho extradited her back to Idaho. You'd think that would make uh, a lady who hasn't had a whole lot of, you know, interaction with law enforcement crack, but she kept saying nothing. I mean, she wouldn't say anything to her friends. She said she knew where her kids were. She knew they were safe uh, and happy. And in 
June of 2020, the FBI and authorities in Rexburg, Idaho, came to Chad Daybell's house with a search warrant. They searched the property. And so sadly, they found both children buried in, in the yard. And then that was when Chad Daybell was arrested. So these two people have been in jail for two years. They'll, they'll see trial in January. And it's serious. They're seeing conspiracy to commit murder and murder charges for not just the kids, but for Chad Daybell's late wife, for Lori Vallow's fourth husband. And there are several other deaths around this case beyond them. So uh, it, they're, they're, the prosecutors in Idaho are seeking the death penalty. So this is a wow. super serious case. Yeah. It's it's so, like, unfortunately familiar, this, this sense of, like, when you said, you know, she knows where they are and they're happy, like, she means that. She truly believes that like she doesn't believe she was lying. And this is like that, like once you get so sold on this apocalyptic sense of reality and you, you abandon your investment in the current body and life that you have because you're so excited about heaven or, you know, reincarnation or whatever, whatever your, your version of it is. This is where you get, um, I don't know. Kieran has a little more, more hands-on experience with with watching this happen in their family. My mom was a nurse. So we didn't ever mm. get that far. But just like, you know, medical neglect and trauma mm-hmm. being ignored because it's like mm. God's will and it's okay. And like, you know, I can't wait to get to heaven. I'm not going to get myself treated for this thing. Yeah. That's actually what I'm working through in therapy this year. It's really fun. (laughs) Like my parents had a death wish and it was religiously motivated. And that kind of fucked me up as it turns out. As it turns out. I mean, the way you put it, Eve, is fascinating to me. I mean, I don't think I've ever thought about it so concisely that you just abandon this life because you're so excited about the next one. And I think, you know, I hope one day I do get to interview Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell. But, you know, that's not possible Mm -hmm. right now. Because I am so curious about when things turned. You know, Lori Vell has an older son who said, you know, she discouraged him from going to college because, you know, you're not going to mm-hmm. need that. The world is is going to end. Oh, like, never happened to us before. No, my parents <laughs> yeah. definitely didn't pull that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, it's... Uh, my, my father it, literally said to one of my younger sisters, because I got married right out of undergrad, like, oh, what are you going to do with that, like just like go and get an MRS instead and like have student loans. Like, and it was like within the context of like in the world is ending and like you're, you should do your duty as like a wife and mother, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's, a, this is not that unusual within the fundamentalist, mm. right? Yeah. I was actually kind of surprised to see it, like not really a surprise, but like it was interesting to me to see that same kind of mentality play out in this story because it's one, it's not uncommon. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually in in our Homeschooling's Invisible Children database with cases where the parents like actively murdered the child. That's a lot of it. Yeah is they felt like they were literally saving their child by sending them to heaven. And it's really hard for me because when I was growing up, my parents would 
literally tell me like, you know, if God told us to sacrifice you like he did Abraham, we totally would. And so I just, you know, seeing those cases and knowing my parents were literally like one whisper that they deemed was from God away from doing that to me and my siblings is horrifying. It's It's horrifying. horrifying. It's it's horrifying. I can't, I have always, it's so interesting because one thing that I've always wondered was, you know, who the aggressor was here, you know, was it Lori or was Chad whispering in her ear, making her do something. But, you know, as I'm sure you all saw in the book, like I kind of play around with trying to understand, like, are they more similar to what your experience is? Or is it more similar to like a serial killer like Charles Manson who got other people to do his killing for him in the name of the book of revelations? What did you think? I mean, where did, where do you come from? <laughs> <laughs> now I'm interviewing you. <laughs> I want, I want to, I want to answer that after I like put a little pin in something that we, that's both all of us are aware of that, but I think is important for our listeners to hear is like in your discussion of this element of, her her belief and his belief, you note that this is kind of unorthodox within the LDS community because they're mm-hmm. they don't support that Cartesian divide of you know the the body is important and is valuable and needs to be treated as such and that's something that you don't see in evangelical or fundamentalist Christian circles generally. Oh, interesting. They usually, huh. they, so usually the body is like like very like. Uh, disdained on a level where you know it makes these kinds of beliefs easier to fall Mm -hmm. into and so there's like this theological block that you pointed out and I thought that was that was valuable yeah the flesh Mm. is Mm. sinful and like you're going when you die you're going to not have this body and have a new body that will be better and pure so like my parents didn't care about exercise because they were like, why take care of this meat cage when like we're going to die and have better meat cages in heaven? Yeah. <laughs> but to answer your question, I don't like, I'm, I'm like, kind of wondering like, I mean, you kind of left this open, like what Alex's role in it was right. like, I feel like, I feel like if he's, he's the force and it's, I don't think he had intent, but I, feel like they they are the kind to not get their hands dirty yeah and the so alex cox is Lori's brother who you know i found a lot of really disturbing history with them that they had some sort of attraction to each other in, in some way throughout their lives but what people told me and was very clear was that he would do anything for his sister and she thought of him as like a guardian angel so there is speculation that, I mean, the police think that he was uh, responsible for sh- uh, shooting but failing to kill Chad Daybell's wife, Tammy, at one point. And um, yeah, he dies extremely suddenly in December of 2019, right before this story hits the media. And it's the day after Tammy Daybell's body is exhumed in Utah, because when she died in Idaho, and this is another thing I don't know if you're familiar with, but in Idaho, you don't have to have an autopsy. Like that's uh, uh, on the family. And 
I have done a lot of reporting about faith healing communities within Idaho, that their Idaho has like the strongest faith healing protections in the country. I think maybe Arkansas also, mm-hmm. where you can treat your child with, you know, they can have a sore throat and you cannot give them medicine and just pray mm-hmm. over them. And if they die, then you won't see manslaughter charges. So there's this really interesting protection. So you, there isn't necessarily always an autopsy that's done. Well, the the thing that's very inconvenient for Chad Dabel and Lori Vallow is that Tammy was buried in Utah, which allowed the state to then exhume her body. And Tammy is Chad's to try and figure out dead what wife. happened. Yeah. Dead wife. Yeah. So they exhume her on like December 12th and on December 13th, all of a sudden Alex Cox is like collapsing in a bathroom, you know, foaming at the mouth and Not suspicious at all. Dies. And he'd been on the phone with Chad. So, so what, what's happening here? I mean, these are the things that are going to come out. There's like all these little tiny questions that are very big answers that are going to come out in the trial. Yeah, no, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot here. I'm just, yeah, I'm, I'm sitting here being like, you know, the like the charismatic leaders of the church group that I grew up in were not the ones who molested the children in the group, but they were the mm-hmm. ones who protected those who did molest the children in the group. And like mm-hmm. there's this there's this like hierarchy of like I don't have my hands dirty, plausible deniability. But would those things have happened if they had not been in that group? Probably not. Like and so there's this right, like, right. you know, where does the buck stop? Who's the like, what's the, you know, impetus? Like, I don't know. Like the the case with the girl who encouraged her boyfriend to kill himself over text. Like oh, right. that kind yes. of thing. Like mm-hmm. was something like that happening here? That So that's where my head went. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, that was kind of mm-hmm. my thought too. I was, I was really intrigued by Alex's role and definitely – Chad and what's her face seem like the kinds of people Lori. who wouldn't like do it themselves. That way they could be like, well, mm-hmm. I've never murdered someone. Mm-hmm. I would never murder my own child. I didn't say I wouldn't ask my brother to do it because I think that they're like possessed by demons or whatever. But mm-hmm. I wanted to be my husband to die, but I wouldn't actually do it. Right. Like- oh, and the whole like thing where they had it wasn't a prayer circle, but they were just like sending all this like murderous energy. <laughs> you you called the section the, or the chapter coven, but I don't think they self-identified that way, but that's how they were acting. No, no. It was sort of how I started yeah. to think of them. You know, we're going to get in a circle and hold hands right. and you're going to be in charge of the water energy and you're going to be in charge of the earth energy. And I was like, you know, I've lived in Portland for a pretty long <laughs> time. Like, like that sounds pretty witchy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, which like is that was really interesting because that's like very far fetched even for me to think of like a sort of fundamentally religious Christian ish group. But then what's the difference between like you know I'm praying in tongues that you know God God would put a hedge of protection and like throw obstacles up in this person's way like. It's yeah, not very, that very far little. Off. It's not. It's it's very very tiny. The charismatic childhood I had was like, I see you. This is just different clothing. Oh yeah, for sure. That's that's so interesting. I mean, so much of my like big questions that I was trying to answer was like 
this idea of a vengeful God, like, you know, I, you know, I remember like Sunday school classes, like God loves everyone. God loves, you know, and, and it's like, these were very religious, the most religious people saying like, our God kills, mm -hmm. our God will crack. You know, if we pray hard enough, the, my husband's car is going to crash with my kid inside, but no worries. Like, it was just like, when did God become this just, you know, violent wrathful blood seeking monster and 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 that's who god is well i mean I don't, to them you know i don't know how the the mormon church handles the old testament stuff but i do know that there's a like very deep like replacement full like mindset anti-semitic you know, intent to how a lot of evangelical christians read the old testament and how they you know, transpose a lot of like God's promises and commands to the Israelites that are documented there onto themselves and onto how they live. And so that just made sense to me. It was like, oh, like they see themselves as like, you know, this is judges level, uh, you know, vengeful God mm -hmm. clearing out Canaan for the Israelites as the promised land. And that's, you know, this is this is how the fundamentalist Christians I grew up would have interpreted that kind of thing. So it it didn't seem that far fetched. I don't know. Again, I can't speak for the the Mormon community and how they they interpret that. But like, there's a lot of problematic, weird anti Semitic, you know, uses of the Old Testament in the evangelical world that hmm. echo this. There's also like I do understand. Like, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like there's some also some kind of thirteenth tribe anti-Semitic elements to like Mormon use of Christianity and use of the Old Testament, but I'm not sure. There, there are the things that I can speak to is that I do know that there is a very pervasive sense of mm -hmm. uh, persecution that, mm -hmm. that infiltrates the LDS church for potentially good reason. I mean, when the church was started, the, they, you know, and Joseph Smith, they were they run out of Ohio, town. Yeah. Sort yeah. Of chased out of Ohio. Yeah. They went to Missouri and the governor passed a law that you could kill Mormons. Like that didn't go away until the seventies. It was like on the books that wow. long, you know, there was uh, the, you know, a mob killed Joseph Smith. Like they sort of, they left, they, you know, pieced out of the United States to come to what was not the United States at that point. They tried to leave. So that, it didn't happen yeah. that long ago. It's like 250 years ago. So that kind of hangs on through the generations. And plus, you know, when Utah became a state, the federal government came in to try and like eradicate polygamy. And so, you know, people remember their very near ancestors were like, you know, broke families were broken up and all this sort of thing. So there's that element of it. And I think that, you know, that feels very Old Testament to me that they see like we were persecuted and so God is going to mm -hmm. make good on that for us and like in in the future. So and then as far as like the 13th tribe thing, I don't know. I have written a lot about Christian identity, which is like a, a I'm, do, do you have you talked about that on the show? It's like this really racist belief system where, you know, white people believe that you know, white Christians believe that they're the true Israelites and that like 
uh, Jews are the spawn of even Satan. This was very popular at the Aryan nations and among white supremacists mm-hmm. and the Klan and that kind of thing. And I have seen that some of the characters I've written about over the years either dabbled in Mormonism at one point or were Mormons and 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 left to be in Christian right. identity churches. So that feels very familiar. Yeah. Yeah, they all have a lot of uh, things in common. A lot of like the the thing I think that makes sort of beliefs like this so dangerous is like you start out somewhere benign, like, oh yeah, cool, God is nice, whatever. But the undercurrent of the whole theology is steeped in white supremacy. Like, yeah. and, and this is true of like, mm-hmm. you know, conservative fundamentalist Christianity, quiverful homeschooling movement stuff that I grew up in, where it's very much like, you know, we are God's chosen people as as white people. And sure, I guess also the Jews maybe, depending on the, like how, like my parents really wanted to be Messianic Jews, but we're not Jewish. So it's like my parents have like this weird obsession with Jewish culture that's like really appropriative and gross. So you have like that, but you then also have like Jewish people are, are bad and evil kind of on the spectrum. But under underlying mm-hmm. all of that is just a bunch of white supremacy and superiority conflicts and being like, yes, I am God's chosen person as a, as a white straight male. So listen to me as I say, you do things that benefit me personally. Well, and I, it, there were little flashes of that in this story that I was picking up on, like her use of the word zombie mm-hmm. and like the racist history around that term. And like, you know, what is she what is she bringing to this what are what is she thinking about that term as she's like you know referring to people who she's considered to have gone to the dark side or turned dark as zombies like she doesn't she views them as subhuman yeah it's a i think that's a good question i mean it's something that her father wrote about in his like big mm-hmm. anti irs you don't have to pay your federal taxes screed that is on sale on amazon <laughs> like is he does use the term zombie in it and i was like well that's interesting and he uses it kind of interchangeably with what like alex jones might mm-hmm. say sheeple like you know people who are just right. like they don't get it or whatever and i do i do wonder that but you know it is interesting because Chad and Lori took so much inspiration from like near-death experience people who say, you know, I saw in the Beyond the Veil and America is, you know, going to fall apart unless we restore the Constitution to its original writing. That is like a big, big history through NDE circles is that everybody always sees the same thing Beyond the Veil. NDE, near-death experience. Restore the Constitution. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's restore the constitution to its original state. So we know what that means. Uh, no mm-hmm. rights for people of color, no rights for women. Like it, it, so you do. Yeah. I think it's a very valid point you raise Eve that maybe that, that term is more suggestive of that, of that yeah. originalist. Yeah. Which I want to, I want to kind of, we put a pit in this before and I'm like, <laughs> this is, we're coming back to it. Sorry. We're both uh, excited. Yeah. So like, did I've you been, listen to the hearing yesterday? Every single time. Okay. So, so when you listen January to the hearing, you're, it's. Okay. So the January 6th hearings yesterday, like, I'm just going to play this. Like, I don't know if you, well, actually, I'm not going to play this. I'm going to put it in the chat so you can play it for yourself because like 
Is this the Arizona Senate, uh, guy saying that my belief, uh, my LDS belief kept me from, basically my LDS belief well, made me protect the Constitution? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. It, so that, that takes you to the link with the video. Um, for listeners, we'll put this in the, in the show notes. Um, it starts at uh, 46 seconds in, 45 seconds in. Because we both, we both picked up on this and yelled. I immediately thought of the book and I was just like, oh my God. And, 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 and Meg Conley tweeted about it. Uh, you know, LDS theology is showing up. And then, you know, as I'm reading about this, this, I'm just like, is this, is this a white horse prophecy reference here? I don't, yeah, yeah. did he mean it as such or did he mean it in terms of just, you know, that basic belief that the constitution is inspired by God? If I had to bet money, I am not a betting. I'm not a betting lady. I don't have a lot of money to throw around. But if I had to bet, absolutely, because Arizona, where I have done so much reporting on the White Horse Prophecy, is in Arizona, Nevada, like into southern Utah, the area that this person is from. So I, when I heard it the other day, I was like, heard the galloping <laughs> of the white horse. That's what it seemed like to me. And, and for those of you who don't know, what is the white horse prophecy? So the white horse prophecy is, it's, it's essentially the best way I've ever heard it described is it's an LDS urban legend. So a man after Joseph Smith died, who knew him said, he revealed a prophecy to me. And the prophecy was that the white horse, aka the LDS people, the white horse would go west. They'd settle in 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 you know the desert, and in the future they would be the ones. To, the Constitution would hang by a thread as fine as silk fiber, and and the white horse would be the ones to save it. And the church immediately said, like. No, like bullshit. This is not real. We didn't this hear isn't it. There's a no curricular post yeah. posthumous director's cut. Like, absolutely not. Yeah. It's not. And he wasn't the only one. There were other people who were saying, like, I heard that the Constitution's gonna hang by thread. Like it was all this stuff. And you know, the church was like, No, it's not real, it's not real, real prophecy. We don't believe this. Has said that time and time again. But still, some people are like, I think it might be real. And, and you see the splintering of people within the LDS culture who start to really infuse their patriotism and their religion so, together. So they feel that that's integral to their And like faith. what is canon is the understanding that the it is traditional Mormon belief that is widespreadly, ex, like widespread accepted, that the Constitution is divinely inspired. And it stops and it stops there. And then the fringe stuff goes, and then yeah. we will save mm -hmm. the day. We couldn't have had our religion without which, the constitution. So it's yeah, which is any religion, yeah. you know, in America. But but yeah, when it becomes like I'm the mm -hmm. vanguard between this constitution going up in flames and that's yeah. that's the way it It really struck me how many times during the hearings people have said the constitution is divinely inspired and every single time i just scream a little bit inside and i'm just like why <laughs> no <laughs> well because it feels like it's a it's like a people saying it, it, it's interesting that you had that reaction too because i think a lot of people are like oh phew <laughs> good thing that you you think that because you didn't you know watch the election but I'm like, this is a bad sign, people. This is a bad, bad sign. sign. Do not let this become accepted 
Oh my God. Exactly. It's like you're saying, but yeah, what, what all of us are seeing is like people saying theocracy good. And we're no, like, no, 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 no. Comes back <laughs> to like bad. the fundamentalist, like reading of the Bible around the time of like Darwin. And there was a schism in the church and how the Bible was read. And there was like this segment that went off and was like, we read this in historical context and like science will like prove God out. And like, we will like, you know, understand this as literature and like, it, you know, it's not all literally true. And, you know, you get this like understanding of like Genesis one and Genesis two, like have two different creation narratives and like the, the like scholars who were in that like more progressive camp took it as like, this is like two different genres of literature. This is like a memory device. This is like, this is this, this is not meant to be taken literally. And then there's the, the camp that went like, Oh, mm-hmm. hell no. We are taking this literally and then double down on everything. Yeah. And so when we look at like the originalist constitution, you know, philosophy, this is what I see is like, I see like they're transposing how mm-hmm. they read the Bible with that like a historical narrative and like, like, you know, this is relevant in modern context, however, which way I want to interpret it, you know, onto the constitution. So it's different. Mm-hmm but it's similar enough that I like it raises the same flags for me. Do you, did you both know, did the white horse come up to you? Like, is that something that you just knew about from your readings on LDS? I stuff, ran into it in this book for the first time. Was like you were. Yeah. Like the concept okay, okay. of the constitution yeah. being divinely inspired and Christians needing to like uphold it and whatever. That was stuff I grew up with, but it never had a name. Like America being a, like the city on a hill, mm-hmm. you get the, like the William Bradford speech, like yeah. goes back to that. You get this like sense sure. of like fulfilling a prophecy, you know, the theocracy as a way of like, you know, making America God's chosen country as it was mm-hmm. intended. And then Christ will return. So there's like all these, you know, various eschatological interpretations of these things that are common, but like the white horse prophecy did not, was yeah. not one of them. Yeah. But it's the same end goal. I mean, it's so like it's fantastical. Like I, it's very like feels yeah. very book of revelation. Like, you know, there's a red horse, there's a white horse. Like it's all, they're all galloping towards the apocalypse. And there's like, it's like, we know, we know, we know we're already like six seals in, we had locusts multiple times. Like, we get it. Right. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, we're, we're here. We're just getting yeah. down the days. Yeah. So it's like, it's like, it's, it's weird, this weird position of like, we are like anti apocryphal preppers <laughs> where we're like, yes, this is all going to hell. The signs are here. And also, like, not the way you think. Yeah, yeah. Yes, but not like that. <laughs> uh. Oh, this has been a delight. I'm your this book is heavy, I think, but I think it is important for people to understand. And I, you know, the Under the Banner of Heaven was so well done. It's a beautiful and like dense show and it's definitely very upsetting. This is a different kind of experience. This is more, I feel like I learned more about the history um and the larger context mm-hmm. of like modern Mormonism mm-hmm. than I I did from watching that show. And that was, so that was very informative and I really enjoyed those sections. I'm so glad I'm, it, it thrills me to hear that. Yeah. I feel like I learned so much 
Like, I really appreciated that you did the deep dive because you're you're talking about a lot of things and you're quoting a lot of people giving their like stories of all these things that they obviously know the context to. But like, I didn't know how powerful near death experience stuff was inside of this. Like, I thought my parents reading the book and enjoying it was like a weird. I mean, I worked at a Christian publisher for a semester and like knew how powerful it was, but like did not realize the connections. Yeah. I I mean, I, I, I learned a lot too. Like there was a lot of things where I was like, no way. Like I thought, you know, and, and, and really sadly, like, you know, I think with under the banner of heaven, watching that show, remembering that horrible story, it's like, you remove the language of God from it. And it's just a story Mm -hmm. about domestic violence. I mean, it's a horrific story of domestic violence. And I think that there's to an extent, some of that here, you know, all of these things inform so we can understand Daybell and Vala better. But at the end of the day, it's, there's just, you know, alleged murder happening left and right. And so, you know, I did um, sort of a breakout piece for the cut uh, about how Lori really seemed to manipulate the most important things to Mormons uh, in order to wear them like masks. She positioned herself as a faithful person and a good mother. And, you know, at the end of the day, mm-hmm. she right. was neither of those things. Like she was just potentially abusing her children and and really messing with them. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for our listeners, if that's, a, you know, a, a thread you're interested in learning more about, I feel like there's a piece by Tracy McMillan Cotton from a couple years back about like the like psychological power that being blonde and being a woman has in America and how you, that like mm. gives you a sense of exceptionalism. And I found that like, I kept thinking about that while I was reading this and just like, you know, if she hadn't been a former beauty queen, if she hadn't been like, you know, stereotypically like white thin, blonde, like, would she been able to get away with this? Like, and that's the, like, the subtext of white supremacy that I'm, like, picking up in here, too, is just, like, that exceptionalism that allows you to just, yeah, I can get away with that. I think, I think you're, you're right on. And it's, like, I think maybe if there was something I wish I could hammer on more, it was just, it's that piece that, you know, when Alex shoots, Lori's fourth husband, Charles Vallow, he claims self-defense and is like asking, you know, like, Hey, can I get like, he's like, all of a sudden the cops Mm -hmm. become his errand people. Like, can I get some water? Like, you know, they just really buy this story of self-defense. You know, you see it in the video of them at the police station afterwards that Lori is like, not even sad at all about her husband just being killed by her brother. And then later, you know, or or I'm sorry, earlier, Charles Vallow had been trying, he'd been going to the police saying, please evaluate my wife's mental health. She's saying she wants to kill me with her powers that, that God can, you know, that she's a goddess, that she can do anything that she's leading the 144,000. And you see in that body cam footage, the officer taking her side and saying, look, I don't know how we're going to get his request for a mental health assessment to go away, but you know, I'm not taking your side or anything, but mm-hmm, clearly mm-hmm. he is like, he very sort of joking with him about, you know, like it just like, how can- it's, a, it's a great American tradition to just assume the, the blonde lady is, is innocent. Yep. 
is innocent. It's just, it's so deeply sad. It's a, you know, it's a very violent book. It's a very sad book. And I so, so appreciate people like yourselves reading it and seeing like, yes, beyond the sadness and violence, there is something deeply important for people to be discussing. And and for those of you who may not be like super excited about like digging deep into the sadness and violence, I will just say like the, the way that Leah has paced this, you could probably read the first half and get all of that like historical context um, that sets up this story without having to go too far into the like domestic violence stuff that might be mm-hmm. triggering or hard to experience there. I mean, there's a, there's a lot in there, mm-hmm. but like the, the historical meat is in that, that, you know, first two thirds there. And it's really that middle section. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if, if that's a concern, I just wanted to flag that and say, you know, don't let that turn you off. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> this was really great. I thank you. I really thank you for having me and I'm happy to come <laughs> yes. back anytime and anytime you want to talk just about stories and stuff. You know I'm how to reach so us. So yes. It's wonderful to talk to people like you. Yeah. <laughs> for our listeners, where can they find you if they want to follow your work? So uh, probably the best place is to find me on Twitter. I, I do tweet a lot about these threads um, kind of coming together the way I see them playing out, things like the January 6th hearings. Um, and my Twitter handle is Leah underscore Satilli. And so you can find me pretty e- easily there. And then I have all kinds Yay. of links to my work there. Awesome. Thank you so much. This was it's always Thank it's you. always nice to talk to another person who who also does the maps on the wall. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Almost. I mean, this is like this is not <laughs> my office. It's like, like. to not be the weirdest person in the room in terms of like putting these things together. So, yeah. thank you for the work that you've done. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. yeah nice. To meet so too. nice to meet you both. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Talk to you soon. Bye. Thank you, everyone, for listening and being patient while I moved and all of that stuff. And uh, and while well, I had life shit going on. We'll, yeah. We'll get back on track here. Yeah, we'll get back. We have some good stuff coming up. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your patience. We will see you next time. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Kitchen Table Cult podcast. Our music is from the track Janet by the Bend the Heavens on their album Stenazzo. Our producer is Dave the Great. Our podcast is made possible by Patreon donations from listeners like you. To support us and join our community on Slack, check out patreon.com slash kitchen table cult pod. Thanks for listening.